Hi, I'm David Hurley. I think most people would describe me as a pretty curious guy. Part of what I do for a living is I head up a consumer research firm. We ask a lot of people a lot of precise questions, and we try to get to some bankable answers for our clients. But my podcast is a little different. Here I get to sit down with a guest, probe them deeply about their life's work or passion, and the conversation just naturally goes in directions that I'd never be able to predict. It's sort of like what happens when you're chatting with someone at a cocktail party, except that it's, uh, you know, interesting. Welcome to my podcast on politics, music, sports, business, and culture. Welcome to the Hurley Burley. Chuck Klosterman is one of the most important and influential pop culture commentators of our time. Coming from North Dakota, starting as a music writer, becoming an author, through books like Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, Killing Yourself to Live, and Fargo Rock City, created a genre of writing and criticism about pop culture that is everywhere in our society today. He graciously agreed to appear on the Hurley Burley, and we're so thrilled to have him. He knows more than I do about all the things that I care about, and that will become evident over the course of this conversation. Because our last four episodes have dealt with music, We'll put the music part of our conversation in segment two. And in this segment, we're going to talk specifically about football, what's happening with the NFL and football and American culture generally, Donald Trump and his relationship to American culture and where he came from, and the future and state of journalism. Is something happening to the NFL? Are we past peak NFL? We're probably past peak NFL. That's probably happened. I do think some of the uh, uh, belief that like football is doomed, that's like an interesting thing to argue, but there's a lot of evidence against that when you look at how many, you know, there's not, it's still, in, at least in the U.S., more popular than not just any other sport, but if you combine pro and college football, it kind of seems more important than all the other sports. Yeah. Um, but it's going, you know, it's, it seems like it's nothing but problems now in, in every way. Like you have the concussion issue, which is, is, uh, I would say, you know, obviously the most pressing problem. And if, you know, and if it starts stopping any reasonable person from letting their kid play high school football, who knows? Well, you know, it's, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say who knows. We know what will happen if, if we just eliminate that. All the issues about protests. That's a weird thing, and making people think about something that they don't want to think about when they escape to watch football on Sunday. By chance, the NFL has had incredibly bad luck this year with injuries, and in that every interesting, beloved player seems to be getting hurt at the same time. That's just a coincidence, but it's sort of making the games less fun to watch and harder to watch. So the peak of the NFL probably has passed. That is true. Now. The thing that is, and, and, I, and I, I hate to always like project ideas, maybe this is wrong, but like one thing that I feel like is a difference between the United States and Canada is that there is this sort of ingrained belief in America that if you're not getting bigger, you're somehow getting smaller and getting worse. But you've always got to be, you've always, like any business idea, any trend, You've got if you're if you're not trending up, you're trending down. So the idea that the NFL could just sort of go 
from being by far the most popular sport to a popular sport seems to be perceived as a huge failure. But I kind of think that would be good. I, I think that for people who love something, it's always better if the thing that they love is a little muted and not so cultural ubiquitous because cultural ubiquity is, is you know, when something starts to slip away from the person who, who you know, made it popular to begin with. Yeah. How does it survive the concussion CTE issue? Uh, Ken Dryden, uh, who, even though you don't like hockey, you probably know of, has written a book on head injuries in hockey and talked about a couple of rule changes hockey could make to significantly cut down on concussions. It's hard to see the same, what you could do similarly in football because it's so endemic to the game. Now yeah, that we know, know what I, we know, how do we turn back from that? Well, you know, there are there is one thing that I think could radically change this, and a few other people have mentioned this, but it's it seems so radical and it seems so counterintuitive that they'll never do it, but it would change everything, and that would be to remove face masks and make the guys wear leather helmets. Because if that happened, no one would use their head for anything. Right. Like, but, but it seems crazy to make, it, it seems to, to, that taking away, uh, you know, equipment, safety equipment could somehow make the game safer. But the helmets don't protect your brain. The helmets don't protect your brain at all. I mean, yeah, but what, you know, I protect you from, you know, breaking your nose. It does not protect you from getting a concussion. Yeah. Um, and that's a, but, but so I, you know, people have talked about eliminating the three point stand. So that everyone's got to start upright. That might help a little bit, particularly if it turns out. And I mean, this is in some ways is the biggest fear that it's not the big time concussions that hurt these guys. It's the micro concussions that happen every play. So if you're, especially if you're an offensive and defensive lineman, some people would say you're getting a micro concussion every down. And if you had to be upright, maybe that helps. I, I don't know. I mean, the larger question seems to be, it's like, obviously in our societies, we'll allow people to do dangerous things. You know, we'll allow people to skydive. We'll allow people to ride bulls. We're allowed people, you know, we'll allow people to race in NASCAR. That's obviously dangerous. The question is, will we allow people to do something dangerous that's this popular? (laughs) That so many people are complicit in, because that's the thing. I mean, if if football's popularity was the same as boxing, people would be like, "Well, yeah, I like this dangerous thing, and only a certain kind of person is into this, and it's this kind of marginalized idea." But there are all these people who are hearing this concussion news, who you know didn't really care much about football until they got into a fantasy league at the office, and then it seems like, well, everybody gets together on Sunday and goes to the bar and does this, and hey, it's something to do. It's Easy. I can talk. I can watch. You know, but suddenly they find that they like this thing that could be killing people. Yeah. And then they're just like, "Well, how do I reckon? You know, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with the fact that like I'm interested in something that is this dangerous?" And I mean, that's why I say like, if if the NFL just got was willing to just get smaller, I think a lot of these discussions would evaporate. But they don't want to do that. They yeah. want to get bigger. Does not seem you know? to be Jerry Jones' vision. No. Yeah. Do you enjoy the game as much as you used to? 
Well, okay, this is going to be the weirdest answer. I live on the in Portland now, so I'm on the West Coast. So I'm in Pacific time, and it makes the game much, much harder to see. Right. I mean, I, you know, like the Sunday night game is from like 5 until 8.30. There is no worse time for it to have a three-year-old and a one-year-old than five till eight. I mean, that's, you know, I do. So, so I, I'm not able to, I'm not able to enjoy the game as much as I used to. I, I really miss it. In fact, I just feel like I, I, you know, I'm, I, I follow it now in some weird way, the way I followed it growing up in the 1980s when it was just like, I'm going to look at the statistics and read stories about it. And like, I'm not seeing the thing. It's so easy to see now and I can't see it. I think your deeper question, though, is like, does the idea of these concussions make me less willing to enjoy it? And I guess like a lot of people, my answer is not really until I see it happen. And then it's weird. I mean, I do think to myself, it's like one of these days I'm going to watch a game and I'm going to see a guy get killed. But that's going to happen. And I've talked about this many times. and yet. Until it happens, I don't really know how it will change the way I feel. You know, well, I, um, especially since we've now moved into a period where everybody knows this. Okay, everyone knows that every player is aware of this. There's nobody involved in football at any level who has no idea how dangerous it is. And my natural inclination always is to allow people to do things that are dangerous if the only person that they're really endangering is themselves or someone else doing the same thing. And I have very liberal policies on that doesn't mean I want to watch it though. I yeah, I, mean, I don't I, I you know you you don't I mean you don't want to see a guy blow his knee out, but it sometimes happens. You don't want to see someone get hurt. Obviously if we're talking about a different kind of injury now. Um it is. Uh, I mean, one thing you're that watching guys that in five to seven years could be so fucked up that they're going to shoot themselves. I know that's to me that that's the craziest part of it. Okay, that that like when they you know look at you know a guy's brain and he killed himself at 44 and they're like he looks like the brain of a guy who had Alzheimer's at 88. Yeah, that's hard to sort of understand in a way. I often have thought that like. What will happen if one, like, you know, Tony Romo now, he's this great analyst for CBS. He's immediately good the first year. What would happen if in the course of one season, his mind would just go and we'd, we'd, we'd have to like listen to this deterioration on television. Would that somehow change the way I feel? I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's possible and I keep watching seems to say maybe not, but yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's also strange. You know, I played football in high school and I, I know I had two concussions for sure. I definitely won when I was in eighth grade and I think I had another later. Um, and yet I look back on that experience and I'm like, well, I'm sure glad that happened, but not the concussions, but that I played, that, yeah. I, that I had this experience that, you know, any other sport. I can go down to the gym and play basketball now. And it's not the same as playing in high school, but there's some similarities. I can throw up, I assume, in a couple of years, I'll like throw a baseball around with my kid and 
and, you know, teach him how to hit and all those things. But football can only be played one way. Like yep. It's got to be an organized no. situation when you're a young person. So I, it's, I, 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 it feels so tough to me that, you know, it's odd to think that, like, because here's, here's, like, here's, here, here's the saddest thing I'll say. You know what my fear is? That, okay, you know, in about seven years, like, my daughter will be eight and my son will be 11, and maybe I'll have the time to watch football again, but it'll be over. Yeah. Like football will end in the period of my kids growing up, and then I'll never get to watch it again. <laughs> so you you played high school football, as did I. You enjoyed it, as did I. You gonna let your kid play high school football? Probably not. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he wanted to, sure. But I'll tell you what, I'm definitely going to. You know, it's like. <sighs> We're at a point where your kid can specialize, where all kids seem to specialize in sports. You don't really, you know, I'm, it's probably the same where you were growing up. I, at least for me, it was like everybody played, played football everything. in the fall. Yeah, like you were, the, you were the quarterback in fall. You played point guard in the winter. You know, you were a pole vaulter in track, and then you played shortstop in baseball during Legion season. You, know, you did all those things. No one does that anymore. So certainly if he is selecting a sport, I will – prefer he plays something else if he if he wants to play sports at all but at the same time like what if that sport is mountain climbing like what if he aspires to be the first person to climb k2 without oxygen on the east wall or whatever it's like well i it, we i wouldn't deny him that would i and yet that's very very dangerous so i i i don't know it's just well he won't I be doing it when he's he won't be doing it when he's 15 though won't be doing it when he's 15. Although he could be yeah. rock climbing. Yeah. You know, he could be. Um, I think also, you know, we're, you're going to see, like, I don't know how this will work in Canada because, you know, my understanding is less. But you're already seeing this big bifurcation in the U.S. where, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, um, one of my best friends has a kid who's an extremely good football player, just a good athlete as a nine-year-old. Okay. Like, he's already playing with the older kids and stuff. Um, but you know, his parents are very intellectual and I feel like part of them is like, can we justify this? It seems, you know, everyone around us is going to think we're doing this incredibly awful, dangerous thing. And I think in the Northeast of the U.S. and, you know, and in, in probably in the Pacific Northwest, and it will just become this thing nobody does. But in the South, in Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee and Louisiana and maybe in parts of California, parts of Florida, the kids will like it will almost become a more meaningful thing and will almost become their way of sort of uh, retaining their regional meaning of being from there. And so you'll see all these kids in one part of the country playing football, no kids playing in another part. And then it will kind of be like boxing in the sense that those kids will grow up and they will be watched by people who would never let their kids do it. Yeah. yeah. Like, so, like they'll be, no, they'll it'll be, be all these, the, the sports, Poor people, poor people playing in front of rich people. Yes, right? exactly. Right. One last question about football, and it may be that there's an obvious and easy answer to this, but I think it might be a little bit more complex because I really don't understand it. Why are football fans in cities with a terrible quarterback not demanding Colin Kaepernick? Like, why don't the Giants think he's a better prospect than Geno Smith or the Bills playing that Peterman guy? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And 
uh, I think it's, it, it, there are a variety of, of explanations. Okay. One, from Kaepernick's perspective, is that it's in his best interest not to play ever again. Because, you know, when at the end of his playing career, he had become a very marginal player. He had had a really great playoff run with the 49ers the year they went to the Super Bowl. Yep. He was very, very good the following year. And then from that point on, he was kind of an average to struggling quarterback. I think if he never plays again, there's a chance he'll make the NFL Hall of Fame. Because every time there's like Peterson for the Bills or whatever, there's, you know, anytime there's a, an awful quarterback in the NFL, and there always will be, the natural inclination is to say, how can this guy not be as good as Kaepernick? And Kaepernick is sort of elevated and elevated. The reason the teams don't do it, I think, uh, is many full. Part of it has to do with, I think, sometimes it's like the guys who own these football teams are pretty conservative people. And they're just like, I don't like the idea of not just what he has done, but sort of what he has caused to happen. That, that uh, uh, I, he's damaging our league. I'm not going to reward him, you know. Another thing, though, and this is actually probably a little closer and maybe more of a practical explanation about what happened with Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is the complete opposite personality as Kaepernick, but is as interesting to media in, in, a, in a, the same kind of person in the media. So if you have Tebow on your team and he's not your best player or at least your best quarterback, it's just a problem. It's just something to have your coach asked about at his press conference every week. It's just something for people in the local radio, you know, call into the radio and say, why isn't Tebow playing? It's just a problem. It's the idea that, you know, there's going to be five people from ESPN in every game you do. And I think it's just seen as not worth it, that he's not good enough to justify um, what they would view as the baggage or the distraction that comes with it. Um, where, where, are the fans, that, where are the fans, Chuck? I mean, I get the management saying for all those reasons, no. But fans who are having to watch terrible quarterbacking, why aren't they up in arms? Are they buying into the same rationales? Well, I think now what you see from, you know, from the from the fan base in terms of how Kaepernick is viewed is it's sort of viewed in that, that uh, through that all or nothing lens where the people who want, you know, the giant, you know, the giants to sign Kaepernick, the bills to sign Kaepernick, they want those teams to sign him. Even if their quarterback was great, like they just, they, they, they like what he represents and sort of the ideas he offers and kind of the courage he has and all that stuff. People who are against Kaepernick, um, for reasons that are mostly political are just going to fixate on his, uh, you know, his, he, I mean, he's, he is a marginal NFL quarterback. He is better than some of the quarterbacks who are currently starting. Um, he would not be among the 15 best quarterbacks in the league. Certainly now, because, you know, uh, if his athleticism has changed at all, if he's lost any of like, you know, his explosiveness, cause that was a big key of what he did. Yeah. Um, and and then you know it would put him in a real tough position. I mean, you know, so so you know, Geno Smith or whatever throws a, a pick six, and people are like, "Ah, oh, Geno, you suck." 
you know, go back to West Virginia or whatever. But if Kaepernick does it, it's like, you hate America. You're right. ruining America. It's like, how can, it's pretty <laughs> hard for someone to succeed if his inability to complete 60% of his passes will be seen as an attack on U.S. soldiers? It would be. That's how people, you know, it's, it's just, people are so crazy about this stuff. It's, it's just a weird thing, you know? Yeah. Hey, since we've kind of edged into it, do you mind talking about politics? Sure. Well, what do you think of President Trump? Well, he's a terrible president. <laughs> he's the worst president of my life. He's almost certainly going to be the worst president since Buchanan and probably the worst president ever. I think that it can be safely argued. Right. And of the many, many reasons why one could think Trump is the worst president in American history, what are the ones that bother you in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I know what you mean by that question because, um, you know, now I feel as though we've moved to this different period where people are almost trying to create reasons to see Trump as a horrible president that aren't that meaningful, like uh, how many Diet Cokes he drinks or like the fact that like he, he eats ketchup on well-done steak and stuff like that. I just, to me, it's just one, he doesn't doesn't see all people the same and and you know all people aren't the same but you need to they need to have the same protection under the law you know what i'm saying it's like you can't uh it's it's uh you have to perceive the populace you know as that that equal people and he's just not qualified to be president i mean that's the deeper thing he doesn't seem to understand the things about America one would expect from a mayor, you right. know, much less a president. Um, and he just is not, doesn't seem to be a remotely thoughtful person. And, uh, you know, it, that's, you, you want a leader who thinks, uh, thinks about problems. And, and I don't know. I mean, it just seems obvious. I feel almost dumb trying to argue things because it seems very straightforward. You know, what's interesting also is people who support Trump, they don't necessarily disagree with the arguments I have just made. Like, they don't, they don't, you don't hear as a response, like, no, you're wrong. He's actually a very thoughtful person and he understands things very well. That's not even why they like him. It's, it's just a strange thing that happened. It's like, it, it, from the time. You know, when he ran for the presidency, it didn't seem that outlandish that somebody from the business sector who wasn't really qualified run. I mean, some people could say, well, it wasn't that different than Ross Perot running or whatever. But as he began sort of dominating the polling and and there kept being these incidents where people thought, well, surely this will sink him. This will ruin him. And it just never happened. Um, it's. It, you could, I mean, five years ago, you could have never made a written a book where this happened without sort of framing the book as like an absurd farce. You could, if it was in a television show or something, no one would believe it. Hundred uh. percent. To the extent that Trump is a revenge or a backlash against the Obama years. Was there anything in popular culture that should have given us a clue this was going to come? Well, I don't know if this should have given us a clue, but um, uh, 
something has happened that I think makes this a little more explicable. Um, okay, fundamentally, the United States is not changing um, from sort of an economic perspective that much. I mean, the, the people who sort of the richest people seem to still have the money. The the distribution of wealth is not changing. If anything, sort of um, the gap between the you know, the haves and the have-nots or whatever, to use a cliche, that seems to be growing. That has, is not that, uh, you know, uh, dramatically different than it was in the 1990s. But popular culture is totally different. I mean, the biggest artist in the world is a black woman. The second biggest artist in the world or the biggest male artist is a black man. Um, you know, you, uh, you, there's shows on HBO like Insecure. There's shows like Transparent. There's shows like Girls. If you're somebody who is just kind of living in their own world and not thinking about the outside world and, you know, tell you experience something that tells you, oh, the world is different. You might feel like, well, everything is different now. Everything has completely changed. I turn on the television, I'm seeing a completely different popular culture than the one I remembered. It's no longer a monoculture. It's completely split. And almost every type of person uh, is now reflected, you know, um, when there's been this huge degree of progress. So they may feel, a person like that may feel that like, um, I don't understand what people are complaining about. Seems like everything is different. But of course, the things that really matter have not changed. But those aren't as obvious because the only economics most people think about is their own. And not unjustifiably, that's just how it is, you know? What is it about people that they would resent creating a washroom for transgender people? Mm, I think that it's that that they just they think it's weird. They just think it's weird, and that's that all. That's as far as it goes. They don't they don't really have a, uh, a you know they're, they're they're you can find talking points for all these things. I mean that's sort of what Fox and MSNBC do in the United States. It gives people talking points to reflect the views they already have. You can come up with all these different reasons why you don't want that, um, but it's just something you know that that they've had. You know, it, it's very, very easy for many, many people to live their whole life having kind of no experience with the transgender person at all. So it it seems as though this thing that in their mind is not even part of the world right. is now driving the world, and I think that's what it is. You know, it's, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think it is as intellectual or even, this might be, I don't know, or even as sort of you know, driven by hate or whatever. I don't think that's the case either. I think people just feel like this is, I'm not comfortable with this. This is weird. So if there's a side to take on this, I'm going to take the side that makes life less weird to me. And I think that's kind of all it is. Yeah. You know? the, there's no, you can't, there's no real, there's not a, there's no good argument for it. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, it was sort of like with gay marriage. It was, it was impossible to really make a good argument against gay marriage. Um, you know, outside of using the Bible, it was like, there was just no, there, there wasn't any sort of logical point to be made, but, that argument was made for many, many, many years. 
yeah, most of my life. Yeah, yeah up until like ten years ago. Yeah, and yeah. then you know, and, then, and but but the, but the thing now too is that things can change so much faster than they used to. I mean, it felt like the the way. Um, you know, gay and lesbian people were perceived changed real fast. Like I felt like, you know, you look at a movie like Crocodile Dundee that came out in the eighties. There's like a joke in that movie where it basically suggests it's okay for a gay person to commit suicide because they're gay. Okay. And, you know, uh, 20 years later, that seemed just completely nuts, but like the transgender stuff that happened so fast. I mean, in 1999, there was really no meaningful reflection of transgender people in culture. I, uh, I mean, there, there maybe occasionally I think there was a Broadway play that sort of touched on it. It'd be, you know, and we're at a point now where I think I'm not sure if it's still the case, but there was a time when Caitlyn Jenner had more Twitter followers than Obama. Like it was like that. It happened. You know, Transparent was the best was both best television show. You know, in the Golden Globes or whatever. It changed entirely so quickly that now, anytime an issue like this comes up, there's almost I think almost like this, this, this almost this biological discomfort with the idea that you're not going to be able to ease into these new ideas. They're just going to happen, and the world's going to be different. And you're just not going to be ready for it. I, mean, I wonder if some people feel that way. You know? And for a certain relatively large group of people, they feel like every one of those things somehow diminishes their status, right? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I, I definitely have heard that argument, and it's not a bad argument. I just don't know if, if that's what it is. I, I think that... I mean, it's it's possible. I, it's, well, what it's, could the argument against to... gay marriage have been other than you're going to devalue my thing by putting your weird th- by including your weird thing in it? Uh, well, I mean, if I mean, I guess my response to that would be is like, yeah, that's a, that's a very reasonable way to describe why someone would be against gay marriage, but I don't know if it's necessarily accurate to to kind of project a reasonable perspective onto this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know, like, the idea of the value. I, I, I bet if, if we just kind of, um, you know, okay, earlier we were talking about the movie Fargo, and we're like, oh, it kind of, you know, it, it seemed kind of insulting or whatever. So I was going to almost say something like that. But we just go somewhere randomly, somewhere in the middle of the U.S. or Canada, some, you know, and we went to a household uh, of a married couple, and uh, you know, we knocked on the door and said, like, we have a question. Like, please describe the value of your marriage. Like, I, I guarantee you, it would, in all likelihood, it would be the first time they considered that specific question. Now, you could be arguing that they either marriage having a value, even if they can't necessarily elucidate it in conversation, and it's there, and the idea of gay marriage somehow taps in uh, and, and assaults or contradicts these things that they can't even necessarily explain. But I don't know. Once again, I just, I, 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 I just have this sense that, you know, people are always talking about, is the world getting better or is it getting worse? And, and I, I, I suspect that it's not getting better or worse, to be honest. It's just always changing and some things are better and some things are worse and it's kind of in balance. But 
the experience every person has uh, makes it feel like it's worse because because different feels worse. Right. You know, it's it's like it's just the, well, and nobody's living the under- aggregate result. Yeah, and it's like everybody, you, you know, you feel something, and it's it's not what you understand. So of course, it doesn't feel good. I just tying back to our conversation about music. You know, there was a time in my life when I had five cassettes. That's all I could afford. So I played these five cassettes over and over and over and over again, and I read things into them that probably weren't there, and I would read the liner notes, and I would just, you know, it was I I, I kind of created this deep meaning with these five cassettes. Now, a person who's in eighth grade now has access to hundreds of thousands of songs. But of course, their experience is probably a little more shallow. They're listening to these songs once or twice, or if they love a song, all day, and then never again. But they're having, you know, they have this completely wide-reaching experience um, that's very shallow. I had a very small experience that was very deep. In my mind, my experience is preferable, but only because I had it. If I describe this to a young person, there's no way they would think my experience was better. It would sound awful. It would sound like what you would do to someone in prison, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's what I mean. It's just like something is different, so it seems worse. That's all it is, you know? The kind of America that can elect Trump or tolerate Roy Moore seems to have come as a great surprise to even a large number of Americans. Does it surprise you? Mm. Well, I don't know. Trump's presidency is so surprising that it, it has almost eroded my ability to be politically surprised by things in a way. Um, the one thing that I thought when before the the, the election, uh, you know, before more the the uh, before Tuesday, you know, before the race happened, is I was talking to a friend of mine as a political reporter, and I was like, I don't think it's going to be close. I don't know who's going to win, but I don't think it's going to be close. Now, as it turns out, I was wrong. It was very close, but um, I did think that what this was going to reflect was a pretty kind of central question. It's like, are people of do people see voting for a candidate as voting for a person, or are they just voting for the general idea of what they prefer, regardless of what that person brings with it? That if you're just, you know, that if you're fundamentally a conservative person, that you will vote for a conservative regardless of who they are. And if you're fundamentally a liberal person, you will vote for them regardless of who they are. You just want these things. And it seems like that didn't happen. It seemed like people did look at the individuals themselves in a way that I think is positive. So I was pleased, not just by the outcome, I guess, but by the fact that it did not seem as though people were just voting kind of for an ideology. Because if you just vote for an ideology, then anyone can run and anything can happen. And, you know, it's, then it's it's basically a, a a question of who wants the job the most, as long as they pull with them this sort of this larger kind of umbrella concept, and that didn't happen. So I think that was good. I think that there was some um, uh, sort of um, standing that Alabama was protecting, though. My my hunch is that if there was no national spotlight on that race and nobody outside of Alabama was paying any attention, that Roy Moore would have won. I think that is probably true. I mean, the national spotlight did change things. It really did. Yeah. Slight change of gears here. Is there any reason 
to hope for those of us who are watching the demise of professional journalism? I mean, I, I, I'm following it both in Canada and the United States, and it feels to me like a real crisis in our democracy, the fact that the commercial news-gathering business is on the verge of total collapse. I, I, I can't say much, I think, that's going to make you feel better. I mean, to me, this began in the 1990s when... Okay, so when you, we go back to the origins of, of, of journalism in North America, and of course, you know, it'd be like a, a lot of cities would have 50 different newspapers or 40 different newspapers, and they were all had different agendas. So everybody could sort of pick the newspaper that they liked that sort of, you know, supported unions or supported housewives or whatever the case, whoever you were, you could kind of find the source, you know, that would say who it was. Everything was biased, and that was the whole idea. And then over time, it kind of improved itself. And we got to this period in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and all this stuff when, when the idea of being a journalist was, the goal was, could you recognize and then compensate for your biases in an attempt to sort of give objective news? And, you know, now, of course, we're not robots. Nobody can be perfectly objective. There was going to be flaws. But that was sort of the idea. Let's try to get as close to objectivity as possible. And then in the 90s, again, like I said, Fox and NSNBC came around, and there was this realization that what people actually want is news that supports their pre-existing biases. It's not that they're willing to, to read that, too. They want that. That is what they want. Um, and because Journalism in the United States is a capitalist thing. It's like it has to make money. That's not going to end. I mean, that's just like, like if if people want to hear the information that makes them feel more comfortable with the way they already think, it's it's just not that's not going to change. No, you know? but the consequences of it are enormous. So, yeah, well, they they are they are the consequences are huge. I mean. You, know, you could say maybe the consequences is that someone like Trump become like Trump becomes president. I mean, yeah. That is the consequence of this. Um, and yet, you know, at least a third of the country wanted that to happen, so they see this consequence as positive. Um, it's so hard, you know. It's a hard thing. I sometimes I think to myself, you know, I I'm you know, doing my work out in my office or whatever, and you know, and it just. It almost seems that the world's not even happening in a sense. Like, like uh, what's happening in the world has no impact on me outside of what's right in front of me. And this is probably how it is for lots of people. And I know that's not true. I know that's not the case. Like, you know, politics have consequences. Decisions, legislation, laws affect things, you know, like net neutrality or whatever was repealed yesterday. Now there's, you know, there probably will be some differences. Maybe I won't even recognize them you know, or I'll, or I'll, they'll, they'll slide by me and I won't, they won't be visible, but they will happen. And yet it still seems possible to live your life. Like all of that information and all of that data is just another form of media and entertainment and it's happening, but it's not happening to you. I don't know. Well, it's uh, it's prompting a lot of debate up here in Canada about 
what you need to do and whether there's any role for government actually in funding journalism, which has spurred a, a very wide debate. But I'm sure that there's more appetite for that in Canada than there ever would be in the United States. Yeah, people would not trust that. That seems to be, I mean, people would see that as the opposite of what media is supposed to do. I mean, I think the idea of heavily privately funded journalism um, in a weird way might be uh, a better option, maybe. I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I, it's sort of would demand a person who feels the way you do about journalism and is a billionaire and says to themselves, it's like, I think this is important to the Republic. I'm going to fund people to do good journalism, and I'm, I'm not going to be involved with it myself. Isn't that exactly so what Jeff person- Bezos is doing? Well, if if you, I mean, that's yes. I mean, I, I, now the question a lot of people, of course, have because he's a public figure. It's like, well, does he is that you know is he really sort of um, not shaping uh, you know editorial positions? That said, the Washington Post seems to be the best paper in the country right now. I mean, it seems like it's doing the best work on a day to day basis. Um, so. I mean, that would be an argument in your favor. So I win. I went into the lion's den with Chuck Klosterman, the most knowledgeable pop culture guy in the world, and he told me I scored a point. I feel amazing. Come back for episode two, where we're going to talk about, among other things, why Billy Joel is better than Bruce Springsteen. Thank you for listening to the Hurley Burley. I've got a little game to keep you occupied over the holidays. Whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, mention a word you would like us to use in the next Hurley Burley conversation and use the hashtag the Hurley Burley. And we will choose the one with the most responses and find a way to wedge it in, even if it's inappropriate. And by the way, as you know from this podcast, there's no limits. Wow.